0: Listeners, this is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This is Lamar Lane, Director, National Capital Region. This podcast is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the member comes first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610 please check out Life on Record, a gift of recorded messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. In November 2009, the United States sportswear company, Russell Athletic, made a startling announcement it would reopen one of its Honduran clothing factories that it had closed 10 months earlier in reaction to the unionization of the plant's 1,200 workers. It took this unusual step which included rehiring the workers as the direct result of a national campaign by the United Students Against Sweatshops. Youthful American activists who had pressured Boston College, Columbia, Harvard, New York University, and 92 others to suspend the lucrative sportswear licensing agreements that allowed Russell to imprint sweatshirts and other clothing with the school's names and logos. The problem unions tend to have when dealing with some companies is their willingness to move operations to developing countries. The question is how readily organized labor can, like the United Students Against Sweatshops, pivot to confront similar challenges. They have managed equally dramatic shifts before. Those who see reason for hope are encouraged by the possibility that organized labor can reinvent itself because it has done it before. In 1986, only five years after PACO's demise, the replacement air traffic controllers had themselves organized as the National Air Traffic Controllers Association and had begun to echo many of the same grievances voiced by their predecessors. The work culture was changing. Some blame globalization, but reality is that many things were involved. The down-world trend in unions since the late 1970s, a disenchantment with workday life, a general rise in education levels, and a diverse cultural influences, along with an increased desire for work that holds intrinsic interest and offers variety and challenges, had come a disdain for the traditional good job in an office or factory. Workers enjoy such innovations as the four-day work week, telecommuting, and the semi-independence of service as a consultant or surviving as an artisan or entrepreneur. Those escaping the nine-to-five grind, sometimes described as the creative class, are generally college-educated individuals who support themselves as graphic artists, freelance writers, web designers, internet publishers, interior decorators, photographers, food specialists, or public relations consultants. This removes them from potential membership in labor organization. The drawback were that most struggle to make a living, no employer health insurance coverage, no workplace safety protections, no employer managed benefits, pensions, 401Ks, No sick pay or vacation pay or collective bargaining. Even full-time employees' rights and security have sharply eroded, including the issue that historically was most dearly fought for, reasonable hours of work so that laboring people would have a life beyond factory walls. The deterioration of pensions, retirement, health, care has also been a significant problem. First offered by stagecoach operator American Express in 1875, pensions became a common feature of the welfare capitalist employment landscape of the 1920s. were reflected in the old age and unemployment guarantees of the New Deal. Then grew rapidly in popularity during the Second World War, when government wage controls made them an attractive wage alternative to lure employees. Employers lowered their tax burden through pension contributions and employees also got a tax break by having some of their income deferred to retirement when they'd have less income overall. Corporate management pensions proved a problem in 1963 when Stubaker went broke leaving the company's 4,100 employees with only 15% of their retirement funds. This set off Alarm spreading nationwide leading to the passage in the 1974 of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, ERISA, which mandated that firms have enough money on hand to cover their pension obligations. This led to a decrease in corporate managed pensions. They fell from 115000 in 1985 to 31000 in 2005. The 1990s bull market proved an ideal time to sell employees on another retirement innovation, the 401k account, which allowed the employer to shift responsibility to what is called a defined contribution plan in which both employer and employee contribute to investment funds that are essentially managed by the employee. This account system required less of a contribution by the employer, saving them millions of dollars a year. Reality was far different. Employees were bad investors putting it all on aggressive but risky stock investment. Only in their employer's stock losing it all when the company tanked, taking it all out when they changed jobs. Then in 2001 and 2008, holders of these accounts learned that the value of even solid stocks and bonds portfolios can diminish or disappear overnight. All of this pension change and increase in health care costs to individuals made retirement less possible. Not working became unaffordable. Organized labor shares with environmentalism the willingness to challenge the actions of industry, but as in the AUW fuel efficiency controversy, the two do frequently lock horns over the impact of environmental regulations on jobs and economic growth. The AUW gave a modest financial contribution to the first Earth Day, appearing sympathetic to the environment concerns, siding with Congress in 1975 to raise auto fuel efficiency standards. The union did an abrupt about face when data suggested the new standards were impeding the sale of Detroit cars. The big three automakers and the UAW were equally alarmed when. Democrats, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, ran for the White House in 1992, vowing to address the fuel efficiency issue. Clinton, an Arkansas native, was well known to auto workers, but Gore had recently published a popular book, Earth in the Balance, warning the effect the internal combustion engine had on global warming. The Republican Bush quail ticket played on the UAW's fears. Once Clinton was elected, the UAW lobbied him hard not to act rashly on fuel efficiency. Clinton, deferring legislative action, instead established a task force to examine the next generation of American automobiles. And after Republicans seized control of Congress in 1994, fuel reform became more or less a dead letter. In 1997, When the Clinton administration was preparing for international global climate change talks in Kyoto, the UAW again cautioned the president against commitments that would unfairly hamstring the United States auto industry and possibly result in layoffs. The conflict was not limited to the UAWs but extended to their unions like those in the construction industry with the advent of green technology in building and energy design as well as the initiation of forest stewardship programs by environmental groups like the natural resources defense council nrdc the argument that doing right by the environment costs people their jobs has lost some of its former intensity and in many urban areas progressive forces have joined with labor to advocate for manufacturing retention to save jobs. As far as organized labor, occasional resistance to environmental reform, it's worth noting that it generally pales in scope compared to the well-oiled reaction of the corporations and their conservative handmaidens. Full-time business lobbyists like the Chamber of Commerce and issue oriented conservative front groups such as the Alliance for a Responsible CFC Policy, the Coalition for Vehicle Choice, or Nevadans for Fair Fuel Economy Standards. Labor must involve global networks or coalition of wage earners to match the power of transnational firms and that will require nothing less than new ways of thinking and new means of coordination. Much as the release of industrial chemicals into the atmosphere by One Nation impacts the residents of all nations, so do the wages paid textile workers in Honduras or Indonesia bear on the lives of textile mill employees in northern Mexico or North Carolina. What the United Students Against Sweatshops demonstrated in 2009 by successfully addressing the unfair treatment of foreign workers was the potential strength and unity of workers coordinating across national borders. How does one organize labor under global circumstances? When the political, social, and economic context in which men and women and children go to work each day, the wages they receive, the protections they enjoy, are so dissimilar, how would one begin to write some sort of global Wagner Act, an international baseline of workers' rights, let alone enact and enforce it. While in the 1990s, international trade pacts were negotiated with inadequate attention given to labor and environmental concerns, today such agreements and the powerful bodies that create them are monitored and sometimes checked by opposition from labor and consumer advocates, environmentalists and human rights activists. Labor's historic affiliation with the Democratic Party has come under reviewed scrutiny. The relationship, despite the Democrats' clear superiority to the Republicans on labor issues, has over the long term often been disappointing. Labor organizations accordingly have come to treat seriously the need for unionized workers to be aware of the labor of the larger political and economic forces affecting today's global markets and to know labor history itself. It has been chiefly in the past two decades that unions have launched deliberate efforts to educate their members and the public about social and economic forces relevant to the workplace, such as the conditions in foreign sweatshops, free trade product alternatives, the right of women workers, and concepts such as industrial retention and green technology. This isn't to imply that people need Indoctrination are to be taught new slogans, but rather that the use of unions' programmatic dollars on member education regarding labor issues is essential. Because almost all labor-industrial conflicts have an international aspect, the most advanced unions now involve many of their departments organizing research, political action, and public relations, education, legal, health and safety, and corporate affairs. In diverse strategies. In turn, these strategies forge effective links with overseas partners, coordinate industrial actions, lobby governments, take legal action, and simultaneously publicize all this activity in more than one country. However, activists hoping to work cooperatively with their counterparts in developing nations will need to be mindful of the negative impression left by decades of American labor's harmful meddling, the conspiring of J. Lovestone and the CIA, URSIT's U.S. Agency for International Development, USAD, USAID, training programs, and the undermining labor union and whole governments. The question of how labor organizes has itself been the focus in recent years of the Employer Free Choice Act also known as FECA. Legislation which has languished in Congress, labor wants a card check system that will allow workers to simply sign a card stating they want union representation, at which point an employer would have to recognize and bargain with the union that a majority of the workers have chosen. It would replace the existing arrangements, often abused by management, in which an NLRB election to certify a union is held once thirty percent of the workers sign cards expressing a desire for a union representation. Such elections are scheduled at the employer's discretion, allowing opportunity for management to propagandize against unionization and harass or even fire labor organizers. While such firings are illegal, Employers know only too well that the process by which unfairly terminated workers must seek reinstatement under the National Labor Relations Act is nearly hopeless. In 2010, the Bureau of Labor Statistics report that indicated union members tend to earn more than non-union workers. Labor Secretary Hilda Solis suggested that enacting EFCA would have the solitary effect of enabling more American workers to access the benefits of union membership. Although in comments suggestive of a deeply entrenched opposition, J. Justin Wilson, managing director of the business-supported Central Center for Union Facts, quickly dismissed the idea that unionized employees are better paid, terming membership in unions an outdated concept for most workers. Americans and a Relic of Depression-era Labor-Management Relations. The labor movement uniquely embodied a vision, a generosity of spirit, and the political courage to rescue society from selfishness, exploitation, and organized violence now belongs to history and for every expression of faith in the universal and timeless nature of worker solidarity. There stands an illustration of its opposite the eternalness of labor exploitation and abuse. Hispanic women suffer conditions and indignities in textile sweatshops in Los Angeles today that would be entirely recognizable to the Yiddish-speaking garment workers of the Lower East Side in 1909, or even to the New England mill hands who entrusted their energy and youth to the low miracle. Gone Missing is the communal purpose that animated America in the mid-20th century, leading workers into unions and creating fundamental trust in government sufficient to bring about not only the benefits of the New Deal, but the advances of the 1960s, such as the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid, and the National Endowment for the Arts, among many other programs. These men and women of labor worked and lived in these towns owned by these corporations, a bell calling the whole town to work yet they took on not only these behemoth and captains of fortune they went on to affirm civil war for emancipation and free labor, formed national unions and federations, stayed corporate supremacy and abuse, and helped Order the modern workplace. It was they who gave workers a voice on issues of war and economic justice, resisted the internal suppression of political freedom and free speech, inspired crusades for suffrage, equal rights in education, and demanded the exercise of good government. Their words, rung in public squares, conventions, and union halls, spread from New England and New York to Appalachia, Detroit, to the timber stands of the Pacific Northwest and into the barrios of the Imperial Valley. Eugene Debs died in 1926. Mother Jones lived a full 100 years, put to rest in a minor cemetery in rural Illinois. Joseph Utter inherited money, moved to California to operate a small wine business. John Reed, Big Bill Haywood, and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn All died in Russia. Carlo Tresca, Flynn's great love, was assassinated on a New York street corner in 1943. John L. Lewis lived until 1969. Jimmy Hoffa vanished in 1975, the suspected victim of a mafia hit. People still come to Chicago's Weldham Cemetery to honor the Haymarket Martyrs. Joe Hill lives on in songs while the names of Robert F. Wagner, George Meany, and Walter Ruther are in major national labor archives. The real monument to what these individuals and millions of others achieved is not in a library or carved on a plaque. It's the freedoms and protections we take for granted. Reasonable Hours on-the-job safety benefits, and the bedrock notion that employees have the right to bargain for the value of their labor. It's also the knowledge that such rights were not handed down by anyone or distributed, ready-made, but were organized around, demanded, and won by workers themselves. Union for Power, Power to Bless Humanity, read the banner that mill worker Sarah Bag presented, to the working men of New England nearly two centuries ago. That fabled relic one hopes was never discarded, but is still with us somewhere in America. And to wrap this one up. This is Ron Michael, president of the NLJSP, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the member comes first.